This is a message from Grace Church, located in Frisco, Texas, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. Grace Church is affiliated with Sovereign Grace Ministries. The Grace Church website is gracechurchfrisco.org. The speaker for this message is Pete Payne, pastor at Grace Church. Last week we had a guest speaker named Mark Mullery from our sister church in Fairfax. gave us a, a wonderful message on helping to understand the difference between doubt and unbelief. He uh, cited a book, God in the Dark, which is at our resource center, and spoke of John the Baptist's experience with doubt after he was in prison. And Mark talked about how doubt is wavering between two minds, between belief and unbelief. And one of the quotes in that message, he talked about how if you remain in doubt for too long, it can lead to what he called a disaster of unbelief, which is a quote from Oz Guinness's book. And the disaster of unbelief ultimately leads to hopelessness. In the Bible, the Lord talks about people who don't know the Lord being without hope and without God in the world. So we're going to talk a little bit about hope this morning. Wikipedia says that hope is a belief in a positive outcome related to events and circumstances in one's life. And they added this little note, the term false hope refers to a hope based entirely around a fantasy or an extremely unlikely outcome. So we have hope and false hope. And I've got two stories to tell you. I used to, um, as many of you know, I used to work in a psychiatric hospital, which always leads to some follow-up comments. And I'm going to ignore all of those at this point. But for part of the time that I did that, my job was actually to go to emergency rooms in the area where we lived at that time back on the East Coast. And I was the crisis evaluator. So when patients would come into the emergency room, that the doctor would say, okay, this is not just a medical problem. We've got some other issues here, typically suicidal or drug issues or uh, just out of touch with reality. Those kinds of patients which the doctors don't like to see in their emergency rooms because they want to treat people that they can actually help in a short period of time. Uh, There were two incidences over the course of a couple of years that I did that that really stood out in my mind as I was preparing for this week. One of them was a young girl who was 19 years old. She was in the emergency room. She had made a very serious suicide attempt, had cut herself, and had also taken an overdose of pills. And as I sat beside the the bed in the emergency room talking to her, trying to determine what we were going to do. I found out that she was 19. She had four children by four different men. She was working very hard to care for her children, using state assistance, go to school, try to make something of her life, try to make something for her children. And the, the men kept coming, and when she would get her child support, they would come to her and just demand their half of it, and then disappear until the next month. And I saw her in that bed. It was one of the saddest people I've ever seen. She felt like, I'm trying, I'm trying to dig out of this hole that I've gotten myself into, and I just can't do it anymore. So it was was not just a token gesture. She was very near death, and they pulled her back from death, and uh, she was hopeless. Or was she hopeless? Another patient 
would have been kind of a comic patient if it wasn't so sad, was an alcoholic that we worked with for a number of years. We kept seeing him showing up in different situations. And he was a consummate salesman. He was the guy that the proverbial selling ice cubes to Eskimos, he could have done it. When he was sober, he could have told you anything and you would believe him. But he wasn't often sober. And he's a, he was a picture to me of this walking between these two worlds. When he was sober, he just set his hope on being the richest guy in the world and finding the thing that you had to have and convincing you very well that you had to have the thing. And then the next time you'd see him, he would be so intoxicated that he couldn't even walk or talk or think straight. So he, he was setting his hope some days on being wealthy and convincing you that you needed to help him to become wealthy. And other days, he was setting his hope on alcohol. He was saying, this is my salvation. This is what I hope in. In Peter, we'll see him writing to some believers in the northeastern region of the Mediterranean, a number of areas that we're going to read about in just a second. And we'll recognize that these two unbelievers that I met with in the hospital are not so unlike us in in the sense of where they set their hope. We're all tempted to set our hope in things, in people, in situations, in our job, in our husband, in our wife, in our future husband, our future wife, our children, our lack of children. We're all tempted to set our hope firmly in something and hold on for dear life. The young girl in the hospital had set her hope on death. She wasn't hopeless. She wanted to die. She believed with all of her heart that death was better than what she was experiencing. And my friend, the alcoholic salesman, who I came to have a great affection for because I saw him quite a bit, set his hope on a multitude of different things, but he was never sober-minded enough, long enough, to see the nonsense that his life had become. Peter writes to believers in these areas who are experiencing probably persecution, trials. The whole book is about suffering. And he writes to them about this topic. One of the main things he writes about in this book is the topic of hope. And that's what we're going to look at today. So let's read from 1 Peter. We're going to read the entire first chapter and then just focus on a number of things as we move forward. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, in verse 1, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, something we just watched depicted symbolically as we watched people be baptized, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now, believers, for a little while, if necessary, You have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, 
may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them, that's the prophets, that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, Conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass. And all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls. But the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news, the gospel that was preached to you. Peter wants us to know that the past and the future truths of the gospel, the past and the future truths of the gospel provide us with our only sure hope. For living in the present. The past and the future truths of the gospel provide us with our only sure hope for living in this present, as the scripture calls it, evil age. Let's pray together and ask the Lord to help us. Father, we, we just cry out to you to open our eyes. There are things that Peter saw as he walked with you, as after you before his very eyes, ascended into heaven after your resurrection, that you spoke to him, and as you sent the Holy Spirit, and he preached the anointed message on Pentecost that saw 3,000 people get saved and baptized, what a service that must have been. Lord, here's one who, nearing the end of his life, writes these things to believers that he'd probably never seen, hearing that they were in distress. And Lord, there are people in this room who are in distress. 
Most of us are not being persecuted, but there are troubles, there are trials, there are issues related to marriages and finance, children, lack of children, marriage and lack of marriage, health and lack of health. Lord, you know every heart, you know every situation, you know the condition that each one comes into this room in, what air they're breathing this morning. And Lord, we ask you to help us to hear through your apostle, your word, through the the pen of Peter, as you speak to us, Lord, help us to take your word with all seriousness. I ask, Lord, that you would open each heart to hear you speaking this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we're going to look at basically three things this morning. The first one is just, first two rather briefly, what, is, what are the past truths of the gospel? Because if it's the, the past truths and the future truths of the gospel that give us our only hope, our only solid hope for living in the present, then what are the past truths of the gospel? Let's read again in verse 3. Here's a wonderful word. As, he, Paul, or as Peter is looking back, he's calling these people to look back and remember the past truths of the gospel. In verse 3, blessed, and that word is the same word from which we get eulogized. So you think of standing over someone at their funeral and you're speaking wonderful things about this person. Uh, let's imagine that it's a good person that you want to speak wonderful things. But even in the cases of people who have died that people don't know, they tend to speak good things about people probably because they're hoping that at their funeral somebody will do the same. But in this case, we're talking about God. And God's not dead. Peter's just calling us to eulogize him, to bless him, to speak great things about him. That's what he's about to do. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Listen to this. According to his great mercy, not because of anything he saw in humanity, but in accordance with his great mercy alone, he has what? Caused us... You heard these testimonies this morning to be born again to a living hope. So right out of the gate, Peter's saying to these people who are struggling with where's our hope? How can we deal with this persecution? How can we deal with these trials? He's saying, listen, remember, blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. How? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, the proof, the permanent proof the only perfect truth in the world that guarantees something. So that's the objective truth of gospel past. It's already happened. The life, the death, the resurrection, and the ascension of Jesus have already happened. They're in the past. For us, we're looking back. That's gospel past. For these believers to whom Peter was writing, they're looking back. He's calling them, hey, remember, bless God. Speak wonderful things about him because look what he's done. He's caused you, believers, he's caused you because of his mercy to be born again to a living hope. Living hope. There's no place for hopelessness for a believer. No place. He's called you to a living hope. So then he takes this objective truth and he subjectively applies it to us. He takes it. It's not enough just to know that these things are true. He then takes it, not us. He gives us the gift of faith to respond to what he's done. 
Here's something that's absolutely true. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. Paul writes. And then he takes that truth and he applies it. And he brings us into union with Jesus Christ. Again, as we see in baptism, they're being united. They're they're representing through the baptism. I'm united with Jesus in his death. And I'm united with him once again in newness of life. The death and resurrection of Christ. Paul says we are in Christ. He is in us. It's this mysterious union that happens. So not only is it objectively true, the gospel passed, but for all of us who are believers, it's become subjectively true. And you heard these great testimonies this morning. I was a young person. I did what I... But I realized nothing had really happened to me. And then God did something. There was turmoil. There was whatever it was. Everybody's testimony is a little bit different. And something happened. Something outside me invaded me. And changed me. He caused me to be born again. So Peter's saying, remember that. Gospel passed. What happened in the past? And the result for all of us who are believers, that is in the past, God applied something. He caused us to be born again. And He brought us in the present into a living hope. It's the air that we breathe. See, we were all born into a world, if you can imagine a world. What's that movie that's out right now with the blue people? Um, Whatever it is. Anyway, you know, they go, they have to wear these masks because they'll die. They die if they're on that planet. If they don't have the mask on, they die, right? Guess what? Everyone in this room was born on a planet that had poisonous air. You were dead. You might have been a walking dead man, but ultimately your future was death. The air that you were breathing, the world's air, was death to you poisonous gases and God came along and he said I'm going to bring you to new life and that new life is going to be found in this present age it's going to be called living hope and that's the mask that I put on you you live in a world that is filled with poisonous gases it's filled with all kinds of things that you're going to put your hope in you're going to put your hope in alcohol you're going to put your hope in sales you're going to put your hope in your wife, your husband, your children, your job. There's all kinds of poisonous gases out there that if you put your hope in these things, if you try to live by a dead hope, a false hope, you're going to die. And it's not something that you might wander into. The atmosphere is death. The atmosphere of this planet that you live on is death. This world is passing away. And there is one hope And it's the mask, it's God, it's God invading us and causing us to be born again, as Peter says, into a living hope. So he takes us from death, he does all these things in the past, and he brings us in the present into this living hope. He gives us the ability to live. All of us, all of us were unbelievers. And and as unbelievers, we're called to remember Just what these folks just did. They did a great job. Their testimonies. Reminding me of some of the things Paul wrote in Acts. That Luke wrote about Paul. How he would speak about what he was and what he had become. That's what they all did up here. They testified to the grace of God. How God invaded their lives. And gave gave them that rescue mask to rescue them from this age. All of us were that. All of us were, as Paul says, without hope and without God in this world. If you're here this morning... And you've not received Jesus Christ as your Savior. If you've not received the only sure hope for living in the present, you're dying. You may not feel it. You may not know it yet. 
But according to the Bible, there's one certain, sure hope. And that's this rescue mask that God gives us. So the past and the future truths of the Bible provide us with our only sure hope for living in the present. So what do we mean by the future truths of the gospel? We talked about the past, life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. He's seated with the Father right now. There were many witnesses that observed this, that saw this happen. And then we look at the gospel in the future. The past and the future truths of the gospel. What's the future truth of the gospel? Read in verse 4. Okay, you've been born again to a living hope and to an inheritance. Now, what's an inheritance? An inheritance in this world is something that someone else, when they die, gives to you. The problem with an inheritance in this world is that when someone else dies, the government comes in and the moths and rust destroy. And as I've been uh, with people who've talked about going and taking to their parents' home, to their grandparents' home and going through, there's just things that just need to be thrown out because they're, they're perishable. And then the person at the last minute on his deathbed can decide he didn't like you and write you out of his will and your inheritance is gone. Not so with God. He says, you've been given an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. We heard people this morning talking about being saved, but Peter is reminding us as well that there's a coming salvation, that we are saved in the past by gospel, We are being saved in the present through the gospel, and we are going to receive ultimate salvation on that day. That's the the future truth of the gospel. So Peter paints this picture, gospel past, gospel future, and he wants us to understand this is so essential to living in the present. I've got a couple of books that I want to recommend to you, and I would just want to encourage you all to study gospel future. It is a very neglected topic among Christians. So neglected that John Piper, who we love dearly, wrote an entire book on this called Future Grace. It's a wonderful book. Let me read just a little bit from this. The rebirth of creation. Here's his question, or here's his statement. I write this chapter because I want to think about what comes after, after death. The faith that grows in the ground of God's promises takes away fear and fills us instead with hope and confidence. When fear goes and hope in God overflows, we live differently. Our lives show that our treasure in God is more precious than the fleeting attractions of sin. When we rely on God who raises the dead and revel in the hope of the glory of God, future grace, future gospel, we don't yield to the sinful pleasures of the moment. We're not suckered by an advertising that says the one with the most toys wins. We don't devote our best energies to laying up treasures on earth. We don't dream our most exciting dreams about accomplishments and relationships that perish. We don't fret over what this life fails to give us. Marriage, wealth, health, fame. Instead, we savor the wonder of the owner and ruler of the universe that he loves us. And he's destined us for enjoyment of his glory and is working infallibly to bring us to his eternal kingdom. So we meet the needs of others because God is living to meet our needs. We love our enemies and do good and bless those who curse and pray for those who despise us. 
because we are not enslaved to the fleeting, petty pleasures that come from returning evil for evil. And we know that our reward is great in heaven. All of this flows from a growing hope in future grace, gospel future. Recommend this book if you've not thought about future gospel, what it means. Another wonderful author who's meditated much on heaven, on the glories of what the gospel holds for us, on this inheritance to come. It's Randy Alcorn. He's writing an entire book on heaven. Now, a lot of this is speculation, but it's biblically-based speculation. And he is a man who served the church well by calling us to think about this, just as the, the Puritans and many leaders in the past have done. He quotes J.C. Ryle, The man who is about to sail for Australia or New Zealand as a settler is naturally anxious to know something about his future home, its climate, its employments, its inhabitants, its ways and customs. All these are subjects of deep interest to him. You are leaving the land of your nativity. You're going to spend the rest of your life in a new hemisphere. It would be strange indeed if you did not desire information about your new abode. Now, surely, if we hope to dwell forever in a better country, a heavenly one, we ought to seek all the knowledge we can get about it. Before we go to our eternal home, we should try to become acquainted with it. Okay? So he, he goes on to cite just, just example after example of how he feels like in the church today, especially in the American church, where we're so enamored with where we live, we're not persecuted. We're not going through what these folks are going through. We can be so tempted to think that the air that we're breathing here is not poisonous. All the more do we need to reflect gospel truths, gospel past, truth about the gospel future, Between those two poles, between those two ends, beginning and end, he calls us to a living hope to live in the present. Study heaven. Learn about our true home. We recommend Jonathan Edwards to you, who studied much about this a couple hundred years ago. John Piper, Randy Alcorn. But above all, study the promises of Scripture. Several books I would encourage you to read, letters in Scripture. Isaiah speaks, especially in the end of Isaiah, much about what's to come. Daniel, Second Peter. Peter was, as he write, wrote in Rome prior to his execution, at least according to church history, he wanted to make sure that people understood this. Something's coming that makes all of this pale by comparison. There's a land where you'll no longer have to wear a mask. It'll be your native land. It's what you were called for. It's what you were created for. So read that. Read Jude. Read Revelation regularly. Not to try to figure out what everything means in it, because you're not going to. But to just to realize there's something much bigger coming. Read Revelation every year. Just to whet your appetite for the glories that are to come. Here's a quote from Randy Alcorn writing in the light of eternity, another book that he wrote on heaven, how it must wound the heart of the bridegroom to see us clinging to this roach-infested hovel called earth, dreading the thought of leaving it when he has hand-built a magnificent estate for us, a place beautiful and wondrous beyond measure. If you lack a passion for heaven, I can almost guarantee it's because you have a weak, deficient, and distorted theology of heaven, a robust, accurate, and biblically energized view of heaven 
will bring you a new spiritual passion. That's exactly what Peter's saying. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Gospel past. He caused you to be born again. What? For an inheritance that's stored up for you that can never perish, spoil, or fade. Kept in heaven for you. Nobody's going to touch it. And because you know that I sent my only son to die for you, I'm never writing you out of my will. Your names are engraved on my hands. Meditate on that. So that's gospel past. That's gospel future. Let's talk about living now and walking in the living hope of the gospel. There are five things that I want to talk about here, but let's read these passages starting in verse 5. We're going to read 5 through 9 and then skip down to 13. Okay, he's talking about us now. You who by God's power are being guarded. Okay, this is in the present. You're being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Gospel future. In this, right now, you rejoice, though now, in the present, for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. Why? So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in what? Praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's for you. Praise, glory, and honor from God for you. Though you have not seen him in the past, you love him in the present. Though you do not see him now, you believe in him and you rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. All of that in the present. That's what he's calling us to. Obtaining in the future the outcome of your faith, the final salvation, ultimate full salvation of your souls. Are you saved today if you're a believer? Absolutely. Are you being saved as a believer? Yes. And are you going to be saved? Is salvation going to come at the last time? Yes. How can all this be true? I have no idea. But it's all in the Bible. So it's all true. Here's a word from the book that Mark... Oh, then let me, let me jump ahead. Sorry. Verse 13 is where we're going we're gonna to land for a little bit here now. Therefore... In other words, in light of everything he said up to this point, verses 1 through 12, therefore, all that God has done, past and future, preparing right now your minds for action and being right now sober-minded, set your hope, fix your hope, drive a stake in the ground. The words here mean in a final way, with absolute finality, drive your stake in the ground and say, this is what I hope in. Hope fully. Hope completely, hope perfectly on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's the only hope. It's the mask. It's what God has done for you, and it's what God has prepared for you that provides this living hope for now to live godly lives in the present, to store up for yourselves treasures on earth, treasures in heaven. I mean, not on earth, not to store treasures on earth, but instead to store treasures for that day. Quote from Oz Guinness. We've got this on a slide, I hope, for you. He writes this in the book that Mark uh, cited and that his message came from last week. There's a creative tension within the Christian faith. The Hebrew word for faith has the same stem as the word for hope. And the root meaning of both is tautness or tension. As Thomas Brooks, the 17th century Puritan, wrote, waiting, or I would add hoping, that's what we're doing, 
is indeed but an act of faith further stretched out. Faith that lacks this stretchedness is less than it should be. The tension of faith results from it being stretched out between God's promise and God's fulfillment. And if one of the others of these is thought to fail, the line of faith snaps or snags, and that's what ends up causing us to doubt. We have to know, I'm anchored here, and I'm anchored there. Faith's calling is to live between the times. That's now. Faith is in transit. It lives in an interim period. Behind faith is the great no longer. It's done. It's finished. Ahead of it lies the great not yet. Christ has come once. Christ will come again. Gospel truth past. Gospel truth future. We've heard the promises and we will witness the event. Hear that? We will witness the event when he comes back. However long the waiting takes, in light of eternity, it's only the gap between the thunder and the lightning. Faith's task is to join hands with the past and the future to hold down God's will in the present. The present moment is the disputed territory for faith. It's where doubt wrestles. It's where unbelief wrestles with us and tries to get us to say, it's that air that I need to breathe, not God's air. It's a no man's land between past and future, ground either to be seized by obedience or lost to disobedience. Visionary faith stakes out its possession of the land and does so with energy and enthusiasm that come from its knowledge, that's its hope, of what the reclaimed land will one day be. Great, wonderful quote. He is a great writer. So how does this look in the trenches, which is where we are? Five things I want you to take from this passage. Five things. What does it mean to live with living hope in the present, in light of all that God has done, in light of all that God is preparing to do that is yet in the future, what are the things that we need to do now? First, we need to drink some water. Next, no, that wasn't one of them. The first thing is to review or remember. That's what the little word therefore means, okay? Paul is, Peter is saying, look back at what God has done. All these things that, I've ta- that I'm talking about, that he's caused you to be born again, that it's about his mercy. I mean, there's, there's a theology course in the first 12 verses of this that you could spend the rest of your life on. There, uh, the, the truth about God, the truth about the gospel, who the gospel is about, what's been accomplished is all there. So memorize it, study it, but go back and look at it. And he says, therefore, I want you to do something. In light of those things that I've just been talking about, the first 12 verses, look back to what I've said, the objective truth that Jesus has come, the objective truth that Jesus is coming back, and the air that I'm giving you, this mask of living hope that you can now live living in this present evil age, filled with poisonous fumes. I've called you to stay here and live, and I've given you the means of doing that. So review, think about it, meditate on it. What has God done? Remember, remember. Think back a number of years ago when we were preaching through Ephesians and Craig noted the same thing. Paul does the same thing. He talks about all that God has done and the first command in the book is remember. Remember what God has done. Never neglect that. The second thing is then receive. Receive the living hope. It's not enough to say, yes, Jesus was a historical figure. Yes, Jesus died on the cross. Yes, I believe that 500 people saw him after his resurrection at one time that he appeared and all these things happened. Yes, but I want to breathe that air, that air. 
that area. We have to receive the gift. He gives us the faith and he calls us to respond with repentance and faith to receive this gift of living truth, of living hope for our lives in the the present time. Remember your baptism. Exactly what Craig preached. Go get that message. Think about what God accomplished for you and in you. And then ask Him to fill you again and again as you're tempted to take the mask off and go after something else. Remember your baptism. Exactly what Paul calls us to do. You were buried with Him in baptism and raised with Him to newness of life. How can you live for that gas? That poisonous fumes. How can you live for this world when there's something far better? You've lost your anchors. Go back and think about your anchors. So review and then receive and then renounce. Renounce. Look at all these other things and say, I refuse to hope in anything else. I refuse to hope that my life will be okay as long as I get my health back. I refuse to hope that my life will be okay if my children come to know the Lord. I refuse to set my hope as a stake and say, I'm staying right here, Lord. This is where I'm going to put my hope down. I'm sinking my stakes into my need to have a spouse. That's my hope. I'm living for that. Renounce it. There's one hope. There is one hope for the future. I'm sinking my hopes in my education, which is going to enable me to get a better job and buy more toys. And at the end of my life, I'll have the most toys that my children will be able to come and say at my funeral, we're going to have to throw them out. It's poisonous gas. Keep the mask on. Renounce anything that causes you to put your hope. Renounce suicide. That young girl that I spoke to in the hospital She believed with all of her heart. I could see it in her eyes. I saw a lot of people over the years that had made it a suicidal gesture. They didn't want to die. She wanted to die. She was serious. She said, I cannot do this anymore. She was a pathetic, sad, hopeless. She had one hope left, death. She was staking her eternity on the fact that if she died, everything would be fine. That was the air she was breathing. It was a lie. What are the things we can be tempted to set our hope in? The the if-onlys, the must-haves. We've talked about this so many times. If you're a homeless man, it might be daily bread. If I could just get a hot meal, I would be fine. I put my hope in that. The soup kitchen will be open today. For most of us, though, it's not about that. We come to expect that. But if I could just have that car or that house, or that luxury, and we go from one extreme to the other. If I could just have a friend, or I've got one friend. I I want many friends. If I could just have that, I'm going to put my hope in getting many friends. Many, not just friends, but close friends. I have to have many close friends. I need the respect of others. If I could could just get people to respect me, my life would be complete. I, I need the adoration of others. I don't need just their respect. I need their adoration. I need an end to my illness or my financial burden or struggle. Lord, if you would just do that for me, I would be satisfied. I need a job, any job. I need a good job. I need a great job, a career. I need to leave a legacy. I need to make my mark. And you can see how 
Maslow's hierarchy of needs starts to be the air that we breathe. And we're saying there are things. Are any of these hopeless? Are are any of these sinful in and of themselves? Maybe. Probably not. But they become sinful when we say, this is my stake of hope. I'm putting my hope in this. And Peter says in verse 13, preparing your mind for action, being sober-minded, Set your hope with finality, perfectly, only, finally, on the grace to be given when Jesus is revealed. That's all that we're allowed to hope for. And it's enough. It's more than enough because of who makes the command. I need a husband. I must have a wife or children. I need healthy and normal children. And then James Dobson says, the minute your children are born healthy and normal, that's no longer enough. They've got to be perfect and wonderful and talented and all those other things. I need a godly husband, a kind wife, and obedient children. I need a godly husband who's romantic and affectionate and a good communicator and a great provider and never watches sports on Sunday afternoon but spends all of his time gazing at me. I need a godly, kind wife who is beautiful and respectful and laughs at my jokes and thinks that the sun rises and sets on me and children who are obedient and respectful, who honor me and are at the top of their class in school, star athletes, great musicians, overachievers, who also, by the way, love God and are well thought of by everyone at the church. That's what I must have. But if we must have any of these things, we're breathing poison air. So after we consciously... Review, receive, renounce. Then he calls us to rehearse and perform. Rehearse and perform. Practice makes perfect. Rehearse these things. Look what he says in verse 13. Preparing right now. This verb is in the continual. This happens for the rest of your life until that day that the Lord takes you home and you won't have to do this anymore. Preparing your mind for action. What does that mean? It means you wake up in the morning and you say, there is poison gas in this atmosphere. I'm going out to a world that is evil, that is corrupt. The days are evil, and I'm going to have to live with great care. As a matter of fact, if I don't spend some time in the Word today and allow the Lord to fill me and give me living hope for today, I am going to be in trouble. I'm going to be hoping for things. I'm going to be tempted to hope for things that are on the forbidden list to hope for because there's only one hope. There is only one hope for living in the living hope of the gospel. And that is the living hope of the gospel. That's remembering gospel past and looking forward to gospel future. So, the the exact Greek phrase is girding up the loins of your mind. It just has a picture of of an Israelite or one of the people of that time taking their robe and tying it up so that they can run. So, preparing your mind, girding up the loins of your mind, being ready, recognizing where you live, that you're in exile. You're living in a foreign land with poison gas on a foreign planet, and where you belong is yet to come. You're not there yet. So gird up the loins loins of your mind. Prepare constantly for conflict. Memorize the promises of God. They're your life. They're the air that you must breathe in order to survive. And then he also says in verse 13, be sober-minded, be being sober-minded. Be continually sober-minded. Don't be like my friend that I talked about who he lived life for alcohol or for sales success. Don't be like him. Be sober-minded. Think about what's true. Think about the past gospel. Think about the future gospel. Think about what's reality. And as you come to those decisions that you'll make during the day as to how you're going to treat your wife, 
as to how you're going to treat your son, as to how you're going to respond to your boss when he fires you or when he yells at you or when he gives you a promotion. All of these things you're going to be tempted to set your hope in and say, finally, I've arrived. This is my stake. This is where I'm putting my roots down. And the Lord says, no, no, remember, you're in exile. You're going there. Don't breathe the poison gas. Don't live for these things. So then finally, then set your hope. Set your hope. Preparing for action. Becoming increasingly sober-minded. Those are the preparatory stages. And here's the command. Set your hope. Make conscious decisions during the day. If you have a wife who is nagging you, who wants you to be different, who doesn't like the fact that you are watching six college football games on Saturday and four professional football games on Sunday, and now that the NFL has spread them through the week, you can pretty much watch a football game every day as football season approaches, and she's nagging you about it, and you hear the word of the Lord, and it says, it's better to live in the corner of the roof than to dwell in a house with a nagging woman who's like a dripping faucet. So you go buy a corner of a roof and you sit up there and you say, thus saith the Lord, this is what I'm going to do. Instead of that, you're breathing poison air. You're saying, you know what? I'm called by God on this planet to love my wife as Christ loved the church. And, I, and she's not experiencing that. So I, because I'm living for that day instead of the pleasures of today, I'm going to talk with her. I'm going to live with her in an understanding way. I'm going to come alongside her. I'm, not, I'm, going, to, I'm going to give up the poison air of today, my hopes, my dreams, my what I want, what I want to stick my stake down into, and I'm going to live for that day. And you can think of a million examples with your children, with your coworkers, with driving in traffic, with any number of things where you, you just your mind goes to, if only this, and the Lord wants you to hear there's no if-onlys. There's only one definite. It's going to happen. It's stored up in heaven for you. And live in light of that right now. Make decisions based on that right now. Set your hope based on what I've done and what I'm coming back to do. And make your decisions based on that right now. Live in living hope. When we do this, when we hope perfectly, None of us do it, but when we do, we'll be able to say no. It will be easy because we'll, be, we'll say there's something so much better to the promises of this world. We will experience joy. You heard that in the testimonies, but that's what Peter's saying. You're going to experience joy, inexpressible and full of glory. Look for that. Count on it. It's a promise of God. It's one of the ways that you know that you're living for that day instead of this day. We'll be enabled to love freely, even our enemies. Because we will no longer hope for an enemy-less world. We live in a world full of enemies. Sometimes they're the members of our own household. Sometimes it's the man in the mirror. Most often, we don't expect anything different. It's a poisonous, gas-filled world. And so because of that, I can keep my mask on and I can go forth to serve. Why? Because I'm storing up treasure over there. It's not about me. My marriage is not about me. My lack of a marriage is not about me. If I'm a single, I'm saying, you know what? My hope is in the glory of God and living that. And I'm not going to put my hope in being married. It's illegal. It's poison gas. Is there anything wrong with husbands and wives? No. But Paul says, better to be single. I'm going to hold on to that. And if the Lord calls me in order to serve his purposes more to be married, I'm wide open to that. But I'm breathing the air of the gospel and of the word. And I'm letting my hope be settled 
in the future. Difficult things to do. I mean, God calls us to difficult things, which is why He births us into this living hope. Let me end with a passage from Luke 6, which has been very meaningful to Betsy and me in certain situations in the past. Luke, writing about a discussion Jesus was having, a sermon he was preaching. He says, I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. To the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other as well. From the one who takes your cloak, don't withhold your tunic. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from one who takes away your goods, don't demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, so do to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? Even sinners do that. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? Even sinners do the same. If you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But listen, love your enemies and do good and lend. And this word is very interesting, means hopeless for nothing. That's translated expecting nothing in return. But in the very next verse, he says, and your father in heaven will reward you. But the exact the phrase literally means be hopeless about nothing. Because why? In the future, your God will reward you. So you're free to serve, to love, even your enemies, to give your life away. Because it's not about now. It's not about having a wife who loves you or a husband who loves you. It's about that day. And I can live in light of that day right now by breathing in the truth of the word, by living in light of that and by recognizing he's called me to a different place. And I can live with one hope every day that he's coming back and with him he's bringing grace and he's bringing salvation and he's bringing things. I can't even imagine that Paul who has seen him was not even allowed to write about. That's how glorious they will be. It's that day. Set your hope finally, completely on the grace to be given when Jesus Christ is revealed. Nothing less. Don't accept any substitutes. You've been listening to a message from Grace Church. For more information, visit our website, gracechurchfrisco.org.